if you don't know who you are and you haven't discovered yourself yet, or if you know and you don't want to necessarily break free, your shell will crack when it is ready. And you will know when it is ready because no one's time is exactly the same. Welcome to another episode of the Anthony Thomas podcast. Whether it's your first time or you've been along from the start, thank you so much for joining our guest today, David Varela, who I have so much love for. David shares some incredible experiences from Latin culture to truly fascinating. I mean, truly fascinating local and world history. I know history isn't the most interesting to some people, but trust me when I say he makes it very interesting and he does hit on some fascinating, fascinating things, including underground tunnels and bathing human bodies in toxic chemicals. He also shares his truly intensely fear-filled experience of coming out as a gay man. There's more and more on this episode. So from your car, from your home or wherever you are, please welcome into your life, David Varela. This is one episode that I know I'm going to want to record like hours. I don't want to. I don't want to stop it. But <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, there can always be a part two or uh, anything like that. There's a lot to talk about. So. Yes, 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 for sure. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna do it. We are live recording time. It's go time. Uh, welcome to the podcast, David. Do you want to introduce yourself? Thank you. I, I know I asked yes, for an official sure. title, but please take it away, <laughs> David. Let the people know who we got on today. Perfect. So my name is David Varela. I am a, a city guide, a local historian, and local hotel concierge as well. Yes. And local being in El Paso, Texas. That's right. The mother city of Texas. The mother... <laughs> So uh, th- a couple of reasons why I'm really, really excited to have you on um, it's something that there's a feel to you. I I genuinely I, I was fortunate enough. Jeanette, we were fortunate enough to by happenstance uh, meet you in El Paso in downtown at uh, your 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 place of employment. And. There's this energy about you that is it's very unique. I don't want to say I don't want to say it's it's completely oh uh, you, you you'll never find people people know people like you but it's so unique it's so it's so rare and what I mean by this is there's there's people who live with passion and there's people who have passion behind the things that they choose to do and things like this but I have never in my life met somebody that the moment for literally the moment you meet just like, Hey, how's it going? Cool. You know, quick little exchange to every step of the way. It just, they just get more and more fascinating and more passion reveals itself in, in such a way that it did with you meeting you in El Paso in your home city. And, uh, the passion you describe the identity of El Paso is, is something I want to dive into because you are not only a historian, not only well-versed in El Paso history, but um, honestly, I, I would say U.S. history, global history, and, and you you don't limit yourself to El Paso. That's what's that's one thing that's fascinating. So 
Right. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I'm excited to bring this to, to the listeners. And I know we wanted to talk a bit about identity. I, I'd like to tie a few things together on this episode. Uh, personal identity, because I think you have a fascinating experience that is also something a lot of people can relate to, if not entirely, a lot of different aspects of it. Um, so I want to get into personal identity. I want to uh, get into regional or, or city identity, things like this. And, and we'll talk about culture and, and dive into all that. How's that sound? Perfect. No, that's excellent. That's it. Definitely. I'm your person for all those topics. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, David, let's start super simple. Who are you? Who, who, who is David? Your identity? Who, who are you? So I, you know what? Somebody who is not very aged, but has lived enough to know a little bit about a lot. Um, I oftentimes will make the comparison that people have heard of between the astronomer and the astronaut, you know, the person who gets to go to these places and has seen them and experienced them and somebody who has read about all of this and knows vastly into, into these subjects. And that would be me, the astronomer, because I mean, easily when I met you and Jeanette, it was immediately, it was talking about travel. It was talking about places, about things that you had visited. I mean, you all were surprised when I knew what a baleen was because no one knows what a baleen is. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things. So that, that is who I am particularly somebody who will talk to you about the last thing that you would expect and will probably maybe even tell you a little bit about who you are. That is 100%, 100%. I can attest, <laughs> I can attest to, to all the above for, sh- for sure. And, and that's, like I said, it's, it's something that is just completely fascinating. It, it is a space that you hold very well and, and you do it, you do it in such a way that it's very clear getting the, getting to know you. It, I mean, right off the bat, it's very clear that you're not just someone who is, well read, but you're you're well experienced in a way that I think a lot of our society today could benefit from. And what I mean by that is that you are a person that mid conversation, we're going to lose you because you're in your phone or you're off doing this or, 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 you know, something like that. You are so well versed in giving attention, that gift of, of full attention to people and that's something that I know that the folks that go on your tours, because you do provide tours around El Paso and such. I know they that do, they, yes. oh, I know, I know they love it because I was also fortunate enough to partake in, in uh, a tour of sorts with uh, Jeanette. And, and it was something that it, it's a rare thing to feel that level of passionate attention without distraction. And that's something you, you absolutely exude. So. I right, that- right. No, I, I mean, and particularly the way that I think the way that our interaction went is the way that I I feel closely with a lot of people who I take on tours, my guests, people who are, you know, even just in the hotel that I work at in from out of town. It is supposed to be in almost an enveloping feeling that you will not feel in any other place. And that is that makes up part of the reason why I'm so passionate about this city, because it's almost, you know, that feeling is, it's so yearned for in so many places and it's, it's not found in so many big cities and this being the city, I mean, not a particularly big city, but, um, right. You know, 
a, a good size one at, at that, you can find that here and you wouldn't expect to. You find a lot of things here you would not expect to. Right. And, you know, both of you can attest to that as well. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So, so El Paso was never, and most folks, if, if they've been listening for a while or if they follow me, anything, social media, anything at all, they know that I've traveled and love to travel. Like that to me is the experience that I pursue heavily in my life, whether it's let me get in the, in the car and road trip somewhere or hop on a plane and fly somewhere around the world. I love traveling. El Paso was never on my list. It was. I believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. It's not on a lot of people's list. And that's, that's the thing. And that's exactly the thing. That is my mission to change. And slowly but surely it is becoming a reality. Yes. Yes. I, and I'm seeing this. So I, you know, I had to, for, for the sake of, of today's episode, I had to throw on my, you know, my shirt. Excuse the baby spit up. (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, but this is it—the Franklin's Mountain Range. A, a shirt that right. was that was so graciously gifted to me. I'm I'm representing from time to time El Paso, Texas. Never in my life did I think I would, but I had a fantastic time out there, largely because of you. There's thank you, El Paso. I feel has a wonderful essence about it. However, what mine and Jeanette's experiences were, were so unique because of you. So I'm curious, in your pursuit to, to open up the world's eyes to El Paso and how much of a gem it truly is, how do you, well, first, how do you identify, we talked identity, your, your, your personal identity. How would you describe the identity of El Paso, Texas, to people who are completely unfamiliar with El Paso to people who are completely, excuse me, who are completely unaware of El Paso, where it is anything about it whatsoever. I would describe it as that really beautiful, gorgeous, feisty Mexican girl who's in your class, who no one can talk to touch or be around that fierce Latin woman who, if you come at them properly, you will fall in love. If you come at them improperly, claws will come out of those white gloves. (laughs) And that is the the truest way to describe the city. We we will not dish out everything that we have like other cities. We're not begging people to come. It is being discovered because it has, it has such a, you know, an entitlement of being, you know, it, it it deserves this essentially. Right. It deserves the discovery that it's getting, the attention that it's getting. Going from a pass-through city to a, an actual destination for people mm-hmm. is such a, you know, people may not think it's a big thing anywhere, but it's something here. And it's something that's changing the city economically, geographically, you know, physically, in every aspect that you can imagine. So that is how I would describe El Paso. Something, someone <laughs> that you have, to, almost a place that you have to approach to with a, a completely blank state of mind because if you expect a certain something i mm-hmm. promise you your mind will change yeah wow that first of all that's poetic <laughs> <laughs> thank that's, you that's beautifully poetic uh secondly that description for the identity of el paso that I, I think that is pretty unique i can't think of another 
city region place anything like that that would that would also fall into that kind of category i'm sure there are there are many out there there are loads of gyms out there how is how is el paso unique from another or any other let's let's just say in the same region right like you're in texas although it's a massive region but you know people know dallas and and austin is definitely up and coming and and been growing quite a bit in the last few years san antonio houston Right. So how how is El Paso unique from other cities, like especially other Texas cities? So first and foremost, the main reason why El Paso is the way it is, is because precisely that it is so far away from the metroplexes of Texas, from the DFW, San Antonio, Houston, Austin's region, even the small little places like places that get more, if you will, historic attention, like Nacogdoches, or places that, you know, that are small towns that are recognizably easy to mm-hmm. identify, like College Station. You know, El Paso is far away from the rest of its sister cities because we were never along the <clears throat> pioneer trail. We were never along the colonization of East going West. We were not part of westward expansion. Maybe mm-hmm. when the railroads came, but we were there long before. And what people also need to understand is that our sister city that's right next to us, Ciudad Juarez, in the state of Chihuahua, is the seed city that blossomed El Paso, Texas. Mm-hmm. So that that is the main thing. I mean, it's extremely unique. It's extremely mm-hmm. unlike any other city in Texas. And you yourself can, can also, you know, you, you witnessed that. You having been to Austin after going to El Paso... You know, here, Spanish comes first. Tradition comes first. Family comes first. Even, I mean, this is what I sometimes even find bizarre to myself, but I love. I went to a school here in Northeast El Paso. And Northeast El Paso is one of the melting pots, in my opinion, of the city. We have all the German community, the Puerto Rican community, you know. There's a lot here. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of kids that I went to high school with, I remember them eating foods that we would eat and they were white, they were black, they were Puerto Rican. I mean, and I mean like to the core of their own culture, but having lived here for so long, they grew a taste for lime and salt. They grew Mm -hmm. a taste for chili on everything. You know, it, it grows on you because the culture here, like I said, it won't attack you. It's not going to override you like a big culture would in in New York city where everything's going so fast and there's so much to take in here without realizing you will discover little pockets of cultures, religions, ethnicities that you never in a million years thought were here. Right. Right. Okay. I, I can attest to that. That was my experience as well. It, it was a place I, I remember touching down uh, the little, little airport. It's a, it's a cute, cutesy little airport. <laughs> and it's international, mind you. And it's international. And yes, it's not it the is. biggest. Right. Right. And I remember touching down and, my experience everywhere was every everybody was was warm and i don't want to say warm and welcoming because there's there's like like you're describing right there's places where you touch down and the welcoming committee is out and it's this whole thing right it wasn't like that it was welcoming in the sense of if i sought anything out i was i was 
you know, with open arms. It was, you know, I was welcome in that sense, but it wasn't something that it was so in your face. It's just like, hey, we're here and we're 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 living our lives. And then our culture is such that we are open, but we're not going to go and pull you in. You know, you have to be the seeker in a sense, right? Exactly. Exactly. And even even when it comes to things like seeking seeking help. I mean, in the simplest ways, people here are like no other are like yeah. no other. I was, I, I toured a man a few weeks ago. His name is Peter, Peter Alamano. He's a model out in New York city. Mm-hmm. And you know, at, the day after my tour, he tells me he's going to go to the missions out in San Lizario and Socorro. Well, at the Socorro mission, his, his, you know, his key for his car, his rental would not work and it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Well, one of the workers, one of the, I'm assuming clergy workers who was there at the mission walks out, offers to take him to Walmart to get a replacement key. Somebody else comes in out of the parking lot and offers to jumpstart the car to see if it'll help. They all go and take him to Walmart. They come back, they make sure everything's on and they make sure they get to the hotel. Yeah. I mean, where in, in a city of almost a million people, where would that happen anywhere else? Right. Yeah. No, I, I can't, I can't think of, I can't think of a, of another place. It is very, it's, it is weird. It's so, it is a unique feel. It really, it really, really is. I do have to be honest with you though, to backtrack a little bit. Mm. And, and this is to, to the credit of, of El Paso, Texas. I don't know Nacogdoches or was it college town? College, college station, college station. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 no, I had not heard of Nacogdoches or college station. So, El Paso for sure was on the map for me long before them. So perfect, uh, perfect. <laughs> for the record, College Station is where Texas A and M is, and Nacogdoches is actually—I don't want to say a city that we have like a rivalry with, but uh-huh. in its respect, the first Nacogdoches calls itself the oldest place in Texas, and I would argue that oh, instantaneously, no, they did. <laughs> See, from the 1700s, though, people don't realize that the first Thanksgiving in the entire North American continent took place in San Elizario, which is right outside of El Paso, which is in the same region. All mm-hmm. of this, you know, it's it's one giant vein. Right. But it happened there in the 1530s or 1540s, even, I, I would say. Damn. Year, decades before 1620 when the pilgrims get here, you know? Right, so, right. That was the first. So first start, That was the first Thanksgiving in all of North America. Yes, that was Damn. the first Thanksgiving. Damn. See, yeah. this is, again, again, something that's overlooked in in a lot sure. of history. This place, I'm telling you, given the opportunity to put it out there, people have no idea yeah. how influential this city and Ciudad Juarez, both both cities, but particularly. Mm-hmm. This region, how mm. influential it has been, not only in Texas history, in El Paso history, but in American history and world history. I mean, Mexican history, it's, it's, it's immense. It's very immense. And a lot of it, a lot of it, people would not think ever in a million years would have connections to wars and revolutions, but it mm-hmm. very much does. Yeah. Yeah. Th- so I actually, I want to get into some of this later. Um, there's some history that 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 you bestowed upon me. You you shared some incredible history I'd never even heard of before. That was so mind blowing to me. Um, it it shifted not only the way I, I view the United States 
history, right? Every little, it's almost like a like a Jenga block, right? Like every piece of significant history that you learn, it's like, boom, there's another piece to the tower. And you can either like put a block in mm-hmm. that makes your, stout, your tower stronger or it's like, oh, it's, you know, kind of leaning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I want to get into some of this later, particularly El Paso and, and right there, uh, what is history? Um, there's some of this I want to dive into later. But first, I think it's, I think it's important we we touch on a, another piece of identity that I find to be incredibly fascinating. Uh, some uh, some pain involved, right, in the journey of evolution and in evolving. And right, absolutely. And this is this is your story, of course, to to tell. But this is the story that you told me and i i remember sitting there jaw dropped as you're you just going on and on and i'm just like i have no words i'm just completely blown away and captivated (laughs) by this story and this is the story of you and your father and your city now you have so much love for this city el paso but it hasn't necessarily always had the most love for for folks like yourself um right so right if you, right. Could, if you could shed some light on this story i think this is this to me is like it's still like what i think <laughs> my, my heart is still just like damn this is what yes well well and and you know it's a story that a lot of people can relate to but it's it's a singular one at that so what you're touching on is the story of how i essentially came out as a gay man or not really came out but was it essentially brought out if i if you will um brought out yes yeah, yeah. and and it, it has you know this city is an accepting place mm-hmm. and once you are i believe comfortable with yourself you'll discover how accepting it is at times but that does not necessarily mean that those exceptions are out in the open because here things are very very much shrouded in a little bit of of guilt Mm-hmm. So I, I come to this, you know, this awakening moment where I am myself closeted to the max to where I, I believe that I'm doing such a good job that it's almost exhausting. And, and it became exhausting mentally and emotionally and physically almost because, you know, at one point you're one person out here with a handful of friends that you're comfortable with that know. And the next, the moment you come into your home, into what is supposed to be your your zen, your zone, mm-hmm. it, it's another person. You and like I said, that I share that with a lot of people, men and women, because I've had a lot of friends who are also, you know, lesbians who feared the hell out of telling their their mothers much more their fathers, and that was also my position. So mm-hmm. since my dad, my dad, born in. Chihuahua raised his entire life essentially here in El Paso, did a lot of traveling between California and some other places down in Chihuahua as well. Grew up always in the late 60s, 70s, 80s persona of a Mexican man. And that persona in those times has not changed much to now. And that same ideology of Mexican machismo, that toxic machismo, even now has not changed from 1900, 1930, 1960, you know, it's, 
it's persisted. Maybe not in the same ways, but it has persisted. And that was one thing that I feared beyond everything else. Mm. Because I, I myself had, had friends who they came out in high school at 15, at 17, at 19, you know, and that's already after high school. But to give you an idea, that's how it is. 19 into your 20s who come out and they're shunned. They were kicked out. They had to sleep in parks. They had to go to other cities. Right. So it, it's, you know, it's intense. The Not even so much the Catholic Mexican culture, but Mexican culture in general. Mm-hmm. It, it, if you're a person of the LGBT community, there's no question about it. There must be understanding that it is, it is something intimidating to face, especially when no one else in your family that you know of is like this. When you were raised basically hearing that, you know, this is bad, that you shouldn't do this. And, you know, when, when it becomes legal, illegal in other places and Univision or Telemundo were running it and you hear, you know, remarks made doesn't necessarily cement you into wanting to open up to your family. Mm-hmm. So touching back on the story of my dad, he is raised here at a time where that culture is very prominent. And in the Segundo Barrio in El Paso, one of the oldest Mexican neighborhoods in the United States, tradition reigns over everything. Almost every other block at that time had a gang, and those gangs did not play around. I mean, they in that time, this this neighborhood was... Again, one of the mother neighborhoods of all of the big Latin neighborhoods of the United States, you know, from Chicago to Denver to California, this was a cradle. And a lot of times these people would not necessarily look for, but if there were rumors or people were told, you know, hey, this person is like this, and they went to a certain school in that area, or they lived in that barrio, they were not, you know, they were not comfortable living at all. Yeah. A lot of times they were waited for outside of places and they were assaulted, they were jumped, they were beaten simply for either hearing rumors or for being homosexual. Right. And in my instance, it's it's one of those things where my dad was one of was one of those people who didn't mess around when it came to his neighborhood, you know. Yeah. There was respect in that neighborhood and it had to be maintained and no one was going to come and make fun of it, which is the story in a lot of places and a lot of cities. And that is what I grew up with, with that seventies Mexican Chicano culture, that masculinity that has to be kept that masculinity that actually still to now, if you ask a lot of, of, I think Mexican American men, Mm -hmm. younger or older, It is a rare thing when they tell you that they grew up hearing I love you from their dad. And I mean, it is rare when you hear that because it's not like it's known, but it's not something that you say at all. Right. There's like literally YouTube videos about this. It's incredible. So I grew up with this idea. So my entire high school years are closeted immensely. Mm-hmm. My, co- my my early college years closeted immensely. I mean, I was in a fraternity. I, I thought I was doing a, a great job. Meanwhile, mentally, I am deteriorating because I just want to keep my family and be happy. And I'm willing to marry a woman in my mindset to do that. And at the same time, I'm not happy. I'm not, you know, comfortable. I'm not breathing. So yeah. I start to fall into this like rabbit hole, if you will. Mm-hmm. And... At, at an instance when my mom and my sister 
find out after I come back from New Mexico State when I, you know, I was at school there, I come back to El Paso, they find out and it wasn't necessarily a, a like, okay, we accept you kind of thing. It was a, it was more of a, a tolerance. Mm-hmm. And when I say tolerance, it was tolerance that had to be built up very, very slowly. A tolerance that, you know, I felt at the time who I was with, you know, if, if I'm happy with them, if you don't want them around, I don't want to be around with you either, right. you know, and that's how it felt. And my mom would reassure me, you know, come bring them, you know, it's okay. But it did not feel, it didn't feel like I could exhale. Right. So that's turning points. Yeah. It's, 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 it's ugly. It's, it's almost suffocating if you will. Yeah. And, and that's something that's incredibly relatable. This is how that's actually something I describe when, when we talk about, I mean, we're talking about culture, identity and things like that. There's a distinction that people don't understand. A lot of people don't get when you talk about, you know, the civil rights era or Jim Crow era, right? Mm -hmm. People don't understand that there's a significant difference between being allowed and being welcomed. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, Hey, boom, just overnight, we, we voted the laws have changed now integration, right? Now there's no whites only pools and fountains and yeah, blacks are allowed here. It's like, okay, that's great. You're allowed there, but you still have to walk by, you know, all the, all the mean mugging and the vitriol hate that's spewed and and the aggression and the violence and all of these things. It's like, yeah, you're, you're allowed to do it. Mm -hmm. So this is what, this is what, this is what it's sounding like as you were experiencing is, Okay, we we are un, on an understanding now. We don't have to talk about it. It's kind of a don't ask, don't tell. But hey, we're going to allow this, but tread lightly. But yes. it's not, but it's not welcome, <laughs> if you will. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're you're basically hitting the nail on the head. Yeah, mm. and into that, you know, transition of okay, you know, this comes a turning point in the summer during pride at this time where the pulse massacre happens and that shifts everything for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this happened in Orlando. Orlando. Yes. So this, you know, huge massacre that happened inside the the pulse nightclub. And I, I, you know, I I obviously was saddened by this because at this Mm -hmm. point I'm kind of becoming careless about what people are starting to think or still believe Mm -hmm. even with my family. And I, it saddens me, but it, it hits them in such a profound way, particularly my mom and my sister, where, you know, my sister writes me a letter front and back full top to bottom, left to right, basically apologizing for all of the things she ever told me or said to me or insulted me with whenever we were angry at each other about my sexuality because that could have happened there. It could have happened here. It could have happened mm-hmm. anywhere, but it didn't happen here. And I was still alive and she right. still had me and somebody else did not have their sister or their brother or their cousin or their son. Yeah. So that, that is what struck her and my mom, I think. So after this, my mom and my dad plan to go to Wikinsingera for our family members that we have in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. random but in <laughs> wyoming <laughs> so they're on their way up there and I, my mom I'm, I'm positive my mom is a woman of strategy yes. she planned this perfectly because she waited until after 
Santa Fe, leaving El Paso to tell my dad, like, hey, David is, you know, like this. And the reason she waited until after Santa Fe was because he had time to cool down before they got to my family's house in Denver, which was their first stop. And she thought, okay, he'll blow off some steam. It'll be fine. And it was too far for them to turn back. So when when she breaks the news to him, we we can't... (laughs) We can't turn around now and go beat his ass and then get back on the road and make it in time for the quince. So we we we, we are see. in an F. We are. They were in an F one fifty. They were not going to waste time. Shout you know out to I mean? mom. That's some solid. That's some solid strategy. Yeah, honestly. So she she tells him, and if I'm not mistaken, his reaction was, "Okay, okay, okay, just okay." Yeah, and like just like absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And you know, I, I hear this and I'm like, what? Yeah. You're telling me that I just spent the last 14 <laughs> goddamn years of my life fearing of my own self identity for an, okay. And it, I mean, mind you, it was a relief. Like yeah. someone had lifted a building off of me, but still, you know, it's not something that I was expecting whatsoever. I was 24, almost 25 at this point, mind you. Damn. So, so it, it, it was, yeah. <laughs> so, Going into that. so, so this is, okay. The, the years growing up, you knew kind of the era and, and, and the culture around El Paso and the barrios, your dad, your, he grew up in everything that was going on. You knew this before coming out, right? Like you knew. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. So was there a piece of you that was like, Okay, if that's how he was conditioned, you know, everyone around, this is how you treat homosexuals. This is, you know, the the treatment and everything. It's only natural that that's going to be the response. If I come out and I put myself, hey, I am identifying with this group of people that, you know, you are conditioned to see and treat and believe are a certain way. So it's th- that's the fear that you carried. I mean, every time you're around, every time you're in the house and everything like this, right? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And this is where this is also, the, this goes hand in hand with how I grew up with my dad also yeah. because he was around. This is yeah. this is just the thing, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, maybe he was absent in his life or whatnot. No, the, he was around. Yeah. The thing is that because I was so often forced to, you know, you're going to learn how to whip cement. You're going to learn how to lay down rock. You're going to learn how to cut a tree up and trim it. You're going to learn how to do things in cars because these were things that I was forced essentially to do. Mm -hmm. I always thought, you know, that I'm going to combat with this man my whole life. Yeah. Which is where that also that, that idea in my own mind came of this isn't going to be an easy transition. This won't be acceptance, you know, coming forth. And then when I got acceptance and I got an easy, you know, an easy response. Okay. It was just, yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Thanks. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. Like, it, there's so much that's incredible. This is why this story is so fascinating to me. And I wanted to bring this up to tie it into the identity and the culture and, and how you still have a love and a passion for this city and everything like that, which we'll get to. But in this story itself, there's so much beauty, so much optimism here, right? You have right. yourself who's going through years of internal torment, right? You're, you're going through years of, um, in a sense, you're, you're 
you're you're shape shifting through your life, right? Through every day, it's like okay. Right. I'm out with my friends. This is my my safe space with my friends that, you know, we're all open with each other and know and all this stuff. And then it's like, you know, you had to kind of put another mask on and like, oh, shit, how am I supposed to behave? And you start to lean into your identity, your true identity more over here. But then when you come over here, you have to, how did I do this shit again? And, you know, well, let me pick up a hammer, or, you know, start mixing cement, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, no, and that's how it was. Yeah, that's really how it was. It was, it was, I don't know how I did it for so long, honestly. Right. Because looking back on it now, having to put that face on and, you know, put the beard on, if you will. Yeah. You know, and and that's just the great thing about the gays. We all helped each other because yeah. I remember having a friend who, you know, she was she was my girlfriend. Yeah. And I was her boyfriend. But she was out here making out with chicks and I was over here, you know, <laughs> enjoying the views. So that's just the thing. You know, it, it, it helped hand in hand early after high school. That's a, that's a solid business strategy right there. The optics yeah, of that. Definitely. Yeah, hey, we got this figured out. Um, definitely. A, amazing job. And I, I mean, from the sound of the story, I think you're spot on with mom knew what she was doing. That strategy. She knew. She's protecting her baby. Like, and, and, yeah. and the empathy of and, and the 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 awakening that your sister felt for her to 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 actually l- turn the spotlight on herself right where she's able to feel wow that happened uh, clear across the country and the US is a massive country clear across the country and holy shit you know like let me put myself into the shoes of these people who are suffering right from from this massacre and and the siblings and the family and all that stuff she had the empathy and and the brass to turn that spotlight on herself because that's not easy right for people right absolutely absolutely and and from that moment on i think she became such a hardcore ally it is outrageous (laughs) and from then on out i i started noticing you know I started, I began to see pride flags where I did not expect to see pride flags. You know, they started flying everywhere that year and on fourth everywhere in El Paso. And it was beautiful, particularly in 2017 there. It it was everywhere. And again, something that like, Oh, Holy crap. I did not expect that from this community, particularly, you know? And then after this discovery, this self awakening, if you will, comes such a much more profound and beautiful thing, I think, of discovering that, you know, you're you're not one of the first groups of people like this in the city. Mm. These stories go back. Right. They're covered, they're gilded, and they're hidden, but they go back. You know, it wasn't until I came completely out and started noticing and recognizing things about my own city that I realized that Ciudad Juarez has a very small but old gay community. El Paso, same thing. We were home to the to the state's oldest and biggest gay bar and club. Oh, wow. I, I even got to go there at one point. Yes. So these are things that, you know, again, you wouldn't expect, but they're a little, everyone has a place here. It ties into everyone's culture in one shape, way, or form mm-hmm. somehow. This is something that I... And and I feel like you're in a beautiful place to touch on because you're very articulate and well thought out and experienced, right? This is something that I feel it's it's a very challenging thing for people to see in whatever it is, whatever whatever challenge you have with your identity, right? Like let's say 
you're the country kid, you're, you know, sixth generation farmer, but you're like, in your heart, I want to be, you know, Silicon Valley tech person, or, you know, I, I want to be a businessman in a, in a big city. And you, you that, that's an identity or, or a cultural challenging shift, right? Where it's not aligned with your culture or, or your familial history and everything, right? But I feel this is kind of a scenario where it's tough while you're in that, that moment where, or that chapter where you're not fully accepting and owning of what your passion is or what your, your identity is or what your existence is. It's challenging to see the beauty on the other side in a sense, right? It's challenging, it's challenging to, to stay optimistic in, in a time where you're almost, you know, you could be fearing for your life or your fear of loss of love is one of the six key fears of, of all humanity. Right. So you're thinking, okay, if I own this, if I own this, this piece of me, then I'm going to lose the love of my, my parents, my siblings, you know, whoever it may be. That's really, really tough place to, to stay optimistic. But I do know and I I feel in most cases in life, we build fear up to be way more intense. The the fear is is so much greater in our minds than in the reality. Definitely, yeah. That that I'm telling you, when I when my mom said that he said okay, where my <laughs> sister actually told me that he said okay. It it wasn't I'm telling you, it was it was so it was, I was in such disbelief. And it was so surreal yeah. because I thought to myself that's it like an okay he didn't he didn't go off he didn't say anything he didn't mention anything no okay like the acceptance was just there yeah and also you know it's because i think along with my mom and my sister's same realization after this massacre that happened uh, was also a little bit in my dad's head as well in that perspective of i at least have my son Mm -hmm. no matter how he is yeah. Same with my mom. I at least have my son, no matter how he is, which unfortunately a lot of parents out there do not see that perspective with yeah. those, with those set of eyes yeah. until it's either too late and they've excommunicated their child yeah. or their child has excommunicated them. Yeah. Completely. So, so before we sh- make a, a shift here, because this is completely I mean, we could do a full episode, just many, <laughs> many episodes on, on this alone. But before we make a shift, what what advice would you give, you know, for folks that are in that dark space? Because, you know, this podcast, it's we're exploring optimism. That's the key foundation for this podcast. Of course. What advice would you give to folks that are that are challenging with identity and ownership of their identity? In terms of this is how you can remain optimistic and keep, you know, keep pushing forward. It's going to be way better in the future, however far in advance. What advice do you have for people? I, more than anything, would just say, if you are ready, then go forth. Do not be afraid that you're going to fall off the cliff. Expect yourself to just fly. Because like I said, like I said, and like you said, the fear of something is the only chain that is holding you on your foot. And the moment you decide to kick it loose is the moment that you will discover who you are comfortably, truly. And that is not to say that you are always going to change because people will change no matter what. And that is okay. If you don't know who you are and you haven't discovered yourself yet, 
or if you know and you don't want to necessarily break free, your shell will crack when it is ready. And you will know when it is ready because no one's time is exactly the same. Mm. So that's, that's, I think, my piece of advice. And that's not just as far as orientation. You know, if you're, I myself had a friend, if you are someone who struggles with cultural identity, if you want to speak, you know, German or Spanish because your families did and you don't know the language, give yourself time to learn. Mm -hmm. If you want to follow some family tradition or something that, you know, is a part of you, give yourself time to learn, grow, absorb experience and extend your wings at a time that's best for you. I love it. I love it. That is beautifully put, beautifully put. And another, another note that I, this is what I said earlier. I wanted to come back to is I'm curious because historically, because you're talking about the machismo and, and, you know, Mexican culture and everything. Historically, Mm -hmm. Mexico has produced the top boxers in the world, the top fighters in the world. I mean, of course, of course, you are of a extremely tough people, right? Definitely. Do you think there's a correlation here from, you know, our culture? We, we, it's well known that, you know, we don't say, I love you. You know, the, the, the fathers don't say this to their sons or, or whatever the case, or if, is this, is this kind of the case with all children typically from the fathers or is this just father to son? Is it father to daughter as well? More than anything, father to son in my in my opinion from my perspective right i i but i also can't necessarily remember a time growing up when i heard my sister get i love yous or any right. of my cousins get i love yous from my deals you know it, right. it it's it's just it's one of those things the love yeah. is there but it doesn't necessarily speak yeah. for itself it's like you should know yeah. You, come on. I'm your, mm-hmm. I'm your dad. I'm yeah. still here. I'm still providing, you know, I love you. Like, you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, exactly. And I, <laughs> I, I honestly, honestly, I think I, I feel there's a strong bit of logic behind that. Right. There's, there's a strong piece of that I could understand entirely. It's like, you look around and there's so many people whose parents have left them, you know, parents did leave, you know, fathers did leave them. I'm still here. Like, wh- why would I need to tell you I love you? Obviously, it's so obvious. Yeah, it's, you know? it's one of those things. And that goes into, that also goes into cultural connection as well, mm-hmm. which I, you know, I spoke with you about as well, because that's not just the case in Latin culture. A lot of times, a lot of black fathers are the same way. Mm-hmm. A lot of Arab fathers are the same way. Yeah. They don't necessarily have to say it. Yeah. It's just known. Yeah. You know. It's like, come on. It's assumed we're family. I'm head of this. I love you. I provide, I put the roof over your head. You know, I've, yeah, mm-hmm. for, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that was a piece that I was like, man, I really, I really, really hope you're, you're open to sharing this. Cause I think it's, I genuinely think that just by you sharing this right now, if nothing else in this episode, although loads of fascinating things, I think that is something that could genuinely either save lives or drastically improve lives for people who listen. I hope so. Now, same here. Now, on to the reason I wanted to to share that to tie it into everything else here is you are so passionate about El Paso, and this is part of the history, right? Is is the the unwelcoming kind of gangsters in the street just kind of just bashing homosexuals around El Paso, right? Mm. That's part of very recent history of El Paso. 
yet you love this city. And I'm curious, how are you so passionate with history and learning history and diving deeper when there's so many different twists and turns that you come across that are honestly repulsive pieces of history? Because when I, I know I, I, I personally struggled learning the more that I learned, there were, there were phases where I had to literally put down, you know, either, um, history books on, on slavery, on American culture and, uh, Jim Crow era and things. I, I had to just literally put down the book and stop reading for, mm-hmm. give, give myself a good month and a half to just process, decompress and build back the brass to go, okay, let me take this back on. It's heavy, right? There's a lot of history that it's is heavy. Oh yeah, definitely. It's, it's, especially when you're so connected and it's your people and it's, you know, you're just like, damn, this is, you know, this is my people. <sighs> and that you just said it. So you, you just said the core root of my mission before I leave this earth. I promise you. Mm. These stories are immensely, immensely important yes. to history and not just American history. Mm-hmm. but personal identification of history, you know, people whose families went through this, people who are still alive, who went through things in this city, particularly that no one in their wildest dreams would imagine. Yeah. And it's because of my people's turbulence in part of this part of history and these histories of this region that makes me so passionate about that because Texas history itself, American history has and I, not entirely. I don't want to say that in entirety, it has washed away very important pieces of history, but they have remained covered and they yeah. have remained foreshadowed by a lot of different things that, you know, have nothing to do with people's real personal histories and connections to their communities. That's the thing with me because my community is so unaware of the immensity of history here. Mm-hmm. that is why no one talks about it. That is why we do not speak for it on ourselves because the mm-hmm. few voices that do know about these things, they are not loud enough. And believe me, I've seen these voices. I have friends who are historians, who are yeah. teachers, who are writers, and their voices shake with loudness. But it is up to our communities here to mm-hmm. identify that history and put it forth. Mm-hmm. And that ties into what you were talking about, about pieces of history that you run into that are just that are just, you know, you have to take them in for a good minute to understand that they actually occurred. And El Paso is no exception. Mm -hmm. And what I always mention on my tours at at the hotel to my guests is that El Paso is a city that intermingles ethnically, religiously, racially. There's no real redlining here. It's it's interesting to, to, to notice a city of this magnitude without that type of racial segregation is very rare. Mm-hmm. But that is not to say that time has always had it that way. Mm-hmm. Because only a few decades ago, El Paso was one of the most racially divided cities in the United States. Yeah. And not even just decades ago, but looking back into the 1880s, El Paso was one of the first cities to enforce the first ever ethnic exclusion of any race in the United States, which which was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Oh my goodness. Yes. So this in El Paso is where the the story of the Chinese Exclusion Act 
gets on its way about talking about building walls and yeah. barriers. And this is from the 1880s, mind you, when the Chinese are not allowed from the East Coast, they're not allowed from the West Coast. So what happens here? They enter through Chihuahua. They go in through Ciudad Juarez, and so begins the beginning of the largest Chinatown in Texas, well into the 20s. 1920s. So that, largest Chinatown in all of Texas was in El Paso. Yes, which makes it at the time one of the largest in the country. Right. And a lot of a lot of people do not know, but some of the biggest family names that are now in San Diego, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, Las Vegas, Portland came through El Paso. They had no choice but to come straight through El Paso because Ellis Island was not going to open its port to them. Mm-hmm. And the West Coast ports were also closed. Yeah. So hence is the beginning of such a beautiful chapter in El Paso's history that even now, if you go into South El Paso, there are ancestors of these people. You know, these people who are Asian, their facial structure, everything, you look at them and they look Asian. Perfect Spanish. Perfect Spanish. Some of the most prominent families in Ciudad Juarez also in in their time were Chinese. Very famous restaurants that to now serve authentic Chinese food. Yeah. I you love know, that. It, it's, oh, it's I love beautiful. That. Yes. I love this. So th- this, this is honestly, you put, you schooled me on this too. And this was baffling. And I remember talking to my friend Ryan Holmes about this because he's, he is on a beautiful ownership journey of his identity. He's black and Chinese. And, beautiful. Uh, he's a, a beautiful man. I mean, truly beautiful man. His whole, his whole family, like they're seriously beautiful people. And he is doing some some wonderful work in in uh, addressing and he's an actor as well, an accomplished actor. And he is he makes skits and, and everything that kind of dive into identity and and helps. It's really just to to build people up that that do have um, a challenging time with their identity and everything. And I remember talking to him when you schooled me on this. I remember sitting in El Paso in the hotel room. And I, and I was like, okay, I got to holler at Ryan about this, right? Because this is some history that I never knew about and I'm not sure he knows about. And this was mm-hmm. about the Chinese that would live in Mexico, in, in Juarez, and they would, they had an underground tunnel system themselves. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And can you, can you talk a little bit about this? Cause the schoolhouse business blew me away. And I'm like, this is just such a testament for the, uh, of the, the tenacity of the, of the Chinese people who have come and made their way in this country. Yes, absolutely. So the, the beginning of that is starting in the 1880s, early 1880s and well into, like I said, into the twenties mm-hmm. where the stories of these tunnels start to come forth. Now, A lot of people have questioned whether or not these stories of all these tunnels are real. I personally don't question them one bit because in recorded history in 1919 at the border in South El Paso, one of the large, I'm sorry, I'm not one of the world's largest opium run was busted in 1919 on South El Paso street. And it was through underground tunnels. So via these underground tunnels, you had people literally running themselves, running weapons, running opium, running rum at some points. So the Chinese start to dig tunnels and they dig them so extensively that schoolhouses are connected. 
houses are connected in certain neighborhoods, buildings are connected. One particular house that's very, very special here in El Paso is called the Turtle House. It's now, it's now an apartment building, uh, just, you know, a quartered apartment. It's a very nice building. You know, you wouldn't think much from looking at it, mm-hmm. but on the point where it sits, it sits on what is a hill, except before all of the homes that were built around it were there, you would be able to see this home in its simplicity from far down in the valley in Ciudad Juarez from what now is far western Ciudad Juarez. Mm-hmm. So back then there was nothing there. So these people would run in tunnel to tunnel and when they would pop their head out of the ground just to make sure that there was no passers-by so they could comfortably escape and go to another one, this house was there with a very special symbol on the side. On the side of the house, even now, there is a massive, I mean, it's feet tall, a giant turtle made of cement and concrete and glass and tile, and it's colored green and blue. And it's been like that for, it's, I mean, it's been there since the building now. was constructed. Uh, so over a century, over well a century. over a century. Damn. So these people, and, and it goes hand in hand. These people who were going tunnel to tunnel trying to get into school to hear the lessons, trying to go to the city to work for people. So they were coming in, and when they would see the turtle on the house, on the hill, that was where they knew they had to go. In Chinese folklore and culture, the turtle is a representation of safe haven. And it's a representation of of almost home, if you will. Yeah. So they go into this building. They would go into the basements. And this is where, from this building really, is where the webbing of the tunnels is most legendary. Mm-hmm. So it's like Grand so, Central Station of, <laughs> in a sense, oh, like, yeah. this is... This oh, is, yeah. Big time. Down to the vaulted ceilings, let me right. tell you. Right. Okay. So when you're, in, when you're in the basement of the Turtle House, it, you don't expect what is down there. I myself have only seen extensive videos and photographs and read documentation about it. But it goes deep, deep into the ground and into the neighborhoods. And in some places, there's chambers that have fireplaces where the ceilings are vaulted on both ends, which lets you know that there's probably rooms on the other side of those little walls. Mm -hmm. And not only that, again, this ties back to people, you know, kind of debating whether or not the Chinese were or weren't in Sunset Heights at the time, which is where this house is located. That's the neighborhood name. Well, it was actually recent, not very recently, but just a few years ago, discovered and talked about even further back that the, I'm sorry, what are they called? Railroad ties were actually used as support for these tunnels. And there's inscriptions in Chinese characters and, you know, arrows going certain ways. And the thing is that it's not that these aren't undiscovered tunnels or anything. They're there. They're just covered completely by cinder block and rock, the chambers that continue are completely cut off. And those same tunnel entrances are said to exist in a lot of buildings downtown, a lot of buildings in their basements that are that were brothels in the Victorian era have those tunnel entrances. One thing that I find kind of mesmerizing and very, very eerie, El Paso High School, which is one of the oldest schools in the Southwest, gorgeous, gorgeous school, in their basement, there are tunnel entrances that are completely sealed off. So it's not a question whether or not this is, you know, thesis level stuff. It yeah. is definitely thesis level stuff. Right. 
Right. The Turtle House. That sounds incredible. How has no high school senior in El Paso done their senior prank to go break down this tunnel? And the cinder block walls. Like, come on. <laughs> Teen, teenage boys. I, I, don't think, <laughs> I, I don't think any any student who knows, even outside of El Paso High, who knows El Paso High would want to get in there. Yeah. You know, it's interesting thing about that school. It was voted the scariest high school in America. And not necessarily that, you know, things will pop out at you, but the architecture is so hauntingly just, beautiful and the stories that go hand in hand yeah. are so tragic and, and interesting. It's amazing. That is but yeah, incredible. even there, those tunnels exist. So, and, and I want to just point out the, the, this, the symbolism with the railroad ties being found in the tunnels, mm-hmm. pointing to this being used by the Chinese is because the, the United States, the transcontinental railroad system was massively, almost entirely built by Chinese labor. Yes, exactly. And what a lot of people don't know that it was also it was also the Chinese who built the railroads in northern Mexico as well. And what was done in the south with <laughs> slaves who were black was done in the west. This may be Texas, but we're still closer to California than we are to Houston. So this was very much on the same level of Arizona, New Mexico, California, mm-hmm. you know, workers and laborers as it was in the South with black slaves. Right, right. Yeah, that is mm-hmm. incredible. Oh, do you have plans to go check these tunnels out sometime? You know what? It has always been a dream of mine to go in them, but I have serious fears of getting trapped inside one of these things <laughs> because, I mean, people people say that they are so extensive that in some places they've collapsed. Yeah, and I this believe is, it. This, Something has to, honestly, something has to be down there because for there to be, I can easily think of at least 12 buildings off the top of my head yeah. that have tunnel entrances in El Paso. Yeah. And that's only including what I know of. Yeah, How no one has gone into them is something that I ask myself. So that kind of is what like, you know, maybe yeah. there's a reason they're sealed off completely. Right. Do you think this something is like a, uh, like La Chupacabra? Or do you think it's like this is no, that's Area Puerto Rico. 50? <laughs> <laughs> or do you think it's do you think it's like this is like government, like Area Fifty One? Like you, there's no chance. No, you you know? know, I don't. I don't know because people people also say that they extend into Mexico, which mm-hmm. I definitely believe. Yeah. But the thing is that, I mean, whether or not they're there, they're there. Yeah. Where they go to, I have no idea. But these stories are there for a reason, right? So. Maybe they've just been sealed off to prevent, I don't know what, people like, you know, getting lost or dying down there, but that they exist, they definitely exist. That's so fascinating. I would love to go explore these dudes. Oh, man, that'd be sick. That'd be sick. Um, There's a lot. All right, we've got, we're we're close to, we're close. I think we'll we'll start winding down, but before we do, before we do, because I try to keep these, I try to keep these episodes like an hour ish mm-hmm. you know a little less than that it's pretty good to digest all in once for most people you know their commute and stuff for it but like i said i said this before we started this recording is i'm like dude you are a guy i could do so <laughs> many hours and episodes and everything so yeah that's uh, if you're open to it i would love to to continue but yes of course before we go I would love for you to share because this has stuck with me as well. There's so much history that you've shared with me about El Paso and Juarez that has been Mm -hmm. mind-blowing. But this this is the one that stuck with me the most. And I would love for you to shed some light on this because 
I'd never even heard of the Bath Riots. Yes, before, absolutely. Before meeting you. So please share with the good people. And again, this is, I'm, I'm just fascinated at how you are so driven to continue your pursuit and knowledge and consumption of history when there's so many dark chapters of it. And this is one of those things. So I actually am, I'm aiming to open this up to everyone listening, but I'm also aiming to digest this myself. How do you do this with such tenacity and passion that you can go on and on and on and and deeper into the rabbit hole when it's like darker and scarier and like more intense? I want to know this because when I, when you shared this with me and the video that that we we watched and man, Mm -hmm. this one struck me. So for the people who don't know, and even those that do, please share with us the story of the Bath Riots and its his- historical significance to the region. Yes. So the Bath Riots are what is probably one of the first big and one of the biggest racial riots that the United States has ever had. And one of the one of them that most people probably have never heard of. So the Bath Riots happen in, I believe, the winter of 1917. Now, it's called the Bath Riots particularly because way back when in that era and previous to 1917, if you were male, female, woman, child at whatever age, and you were Mexican and wanted to come over to the American side into the United States, you were by force accounted to enter a bath of vinegar, kerosene, coal oil, you were your clothes were stripped from you. You were inspected almost as you would animals. Uh, your clothes were steamed completely, and then at the end you would get gassed down with a very thick white gas that was used at the time. And I'll jump into that here in a few seconds. So this was an occurrence daily on the border, and every eight days, if I'm not mistaken, you had to re you had to get your uh, your voucher basically restamped. So you had to go through the process again. If you were found to have anything, God forbid, your head was shaved. You were bathed in gasoline. It was it was ugly. It was a very ugly thing at the time. And a lot of people don't realize is that this is because of El Paso's mayor, Tom Lee Senior, not the artist that was his son, but Tom Lee Senior. So Tom Lee Sr. is so incredibly afraid of lice and typhus and dysentery and different diseases that in some pockets of El Paso that are very, very poor, these things exist. So he sends a telegram to the uh, general, Surgeon General of the United States and tells him basically that hundreds of lazy, lousy, destitute Mexicans are crossing into the United States daily from Ciudad Juarez and that it will cause, you know, massive outbreaks of diseases if there's no quarantine set. So he has one particular neighborhood, the oldest neighborhood in my knowledge, the oldest Mexican neighborhood in the United States, Chihuahua, far south El Paso. He has a ton of jacales, adobe homes, brick homes, raised completely. If anyone was found to have lice, everyone's clothing was burned in that family. Their heads were shaved. Yeah, it was Damn. it was a treacherous time to be Mexican in the United States, yeah. and particularly in El Paso. So he starts implementing these baths where people must be sanitized top to bottom completely before entering the country. And this continues 
One particular 17-year-old maid named Carmelita Torres, is her, her name in documentation, decides that she no longer wants to take these baths because, you know, women are groped and assaulted, basically. Their photographs were taken and posted in bars. Men were treated like livestock. You know, there was no humanity whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So she, on a trolley, convinces several dozen women that turn into 200 women to protest the baths. And so they do. Now, in just a few hours, 200 people turned into 2,000. And most of them women. So as they're literally throwing bottles and stones at the police officers that are trying to get everything calm, the mob moves into El Paso and South El Paso. And this massive wave of people just start rioting against these baths. So much so that General Pershing is called in from Fort Bliss to set in martial law in South El Paso and divides the city that night. First time in the Southwestern history of the United States that the borders closed for this reason, he redlines the city for the first time ever. And on Paisano Avenue in, in South downtown El Paso, no one who was Mexican was allowed to go north and no one who was white was allowed to go south. But it was so immense that even people from Ciudad Juarez go on horseback over the river into the Segundo Barrio and start defending the people who are bathing, who are basically forced to bathe yeah. all the time. So this closes the border for two days. A couple of ringleaders are rounded up. It's known that a few of the men are executed and Carmelita Torres is put in jail. Mm. And that is the last that anyone knows of anything that happened to her, which undoubtedly she was probably executed, to yeah. be completely honest with you. I doubt she was set free. Yeah. And this is a forgotten thing in history because it continued. It continued well into the 60s. Even with the Bracero program, it continued for decades after. So although it didn't stop the riots, it impacted them to the point where the United States had to shut the border down. The army was called in. I mean, mm -hmm. people were executed because of this. Yeah. And a lot of ominous things start to arise when you look into the bath riots. And for example, like something I told you that, again, people have no idea of. In the 1930s, German scientists, and keyword, 30s and German mm -hmm. scientists, come to El Paso and are enthralled. I mean, they're amazed at how well the United States is doing of a job of sanitizing their immigrant population. So much so that they take photographs and copy these blueprints that the city had for these disinfection rooms and these what were labeled gas chambers. Mm -hmm. And they take them back to Germany, put them in a science journal, literally reference El Paso and how good they do a job at sanitizing migrants that later on they use the same style of gas chambers in the Holocaust. And not only that, Earlier, I mentioned that Mexican people were final, like, lastly, after the bats, gassed down with a white gas. Well, that smoky gas was actually Zyklon B. And although it was not used on the border to intentionally kill people, it was from that direct idea of using Zyklon B here on the Mexican border that German Nazi scientists put it solid into gas chambers and executed millions of people.
So it goes hand in hand. It wasn't that we copied Nazi Germany. It is literally vice versa. And it all happened right here on the border. David. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about, man. How the hell do you, how do you possess, like, this is tough shit. It is, but I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I profoundly want to know this knowledge and yeah. get deeper and deeper into these ominous stories. Because just like you, as a person of color, I am expected to not know these things in the United yeah. States. Yeah. You are not expected to know that, you know, even in recent decades, interracial marriage was frowned upon. Yeah. I am not expected to know that one of the first basically civil rights movements on the border happened in my backyard. Yeah. People are not supposed to know these things. We are taught history a certain mm -hmm. way. And that is, again, a whole coming of circle with my mission. Yeah. That's what I tell everyone at the hotel. And I make this point because I started at the hotel as the doorman. You met me as the doorman, as the porter. You are, you, <laughs> I, I, you know, as far as identity goes, I'm 100% going to honor, you know, you being the historian and soon to be author, I understand, which we'll get into a little yeah, bit I, as we sign yes, up. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> uh, you are forever doorman, Dave. In my heart, you know, that's Thank how we you. met. I know, we I, and I love that, and I love that. It's it's the best, it is the best. <laughs> and even when, even when you are you create your own school, you know, your own university or, or whatever charter school, whatever it is, even when you're you're doing, you're an author, multi published, all this shit. You're, I'm going to forever, I'm gonna humble you with Doorman Dave. No, I love it, and I love that. Are you kidding? That's, I always remember you for that exact reason, yeah. But it's just got a good ring to it. <laughs> Yeah. And I mentioned that because as, as someone who started at the door mm -hmm. and, you know, valet driver and shuttle driver and bellman and every position in the housekeeping department, you know, mm -hmm. I did the rooms, I helped with setup for events and things like that. And then moving into the restaurant, I saw every department of the hotel mm -hmm. down to now what I have as my position that I wanted for literally a whole year, which is concierge. I have the ability to not only deliver to people a sense of history that they need to hear, that they should see from someone's eyes who has seen it and experienced, you know, the reality of it and read about it truly. But not only that, as someone who has, who has seen how and just how people think of El Paso, because, you know, as the concierge, no one tells me that this city is anything but nice. Yeah. As the doorman, I would hear a lot of things. So yeah. people's perceptions change and, I always tell, like I, like I tell you, as someone who's seen every aspect of that, I tell everyone from the now bellman to mm -hmm. the front desk to housekeeping staff, speak. Speak well and speak clearly and don't be afraid to. Mm -hmm. If you don't know, ask. And if you know, answer confidently. Because the one thing that people expect, particularly here on the border is ignorance and Mexicans. And I'll be damned if I'm going to give them one of those. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Oh. That, is a, that is a beautiful message. And, and honestly, that, is, that alone is powerful, right? That people of color 
are expected to not know the history. And exactly. And this is, I mean, this is in a sense, this is a universal experience uh, that history is written by the those who win the war, right? That sort of um mm-hmm. perspective. You are that that right there. See, you know, you know just how to do it because that shit right there is exactly what will fire me up to be like, I gotta keep diving deeper, no matter how dark See, this and, gets. Yeah, I'm expected and to that, not know this, you know. Exactly, exactly. And diving into that, diving into that again, you wouldn't, you didn't expect a Chinatown in El Paso. No, I bet you, I bet you, you would not expect El Paso to be one of the first cradles of Black history in the South and Southwest right. either. Right. You you would not expect it to be home to one of the oldest Jewish populations in the country. Right. You would not expect a lot of these things. And yeah. this is why I say everyone has a place here. If yeah. you're a woman, if you're gay, if you're Jewish, Black, Chinese, if you're Indian, if you're Puerto Rican, you have a story here. Yes. If you're German, Korean, you have a story here. You have a place. 100%. This, here, and the reason I, I love telling this to my guests more than anything, the reason people don't think that we have this big, beautiful, massive melting pot of culture is because here the sun tans everyone even. <laughs> Honestly, I love that. That's... I love it. Okay. <laughs> that's a beautiful universal connection right there um okay thank you we'll we'll wind this thing down with uh i want to leave a a good takeaway for for folks here so you are becoming if not already there masterful with connecting cultures and and cultural identity um what can people wherever they are, whether they are native and local to wherever they are or wherever they're going to be, um, or visitors, what can people do to add healthy value to the evolution or the, the culture of a place? More than anything, educating yourself. And after you've educated yourself, educating your community. And I don't necessarily mean that you have to be a teacher or a pastor or someone who has influence. I mean, just be someone who knows who they are culturally, who knows where they are geographically, and who knows what's around them historically. Because the wonderful thing about knowing all of those things is you don't need to pay a university to learn them and no one can ever take them from you. And a, a master of one city will not be conquered by someone from somewhere else. So that's the thing, education of your own communities. And after you've fully, even not fully, but well enough educated yourself, I believe it is your duty to not only educate your community, but your your people, your culture, and keep mm-hmm. things alive that must be kept alive. Write what read what needs to be written. Tell what needs to be told, and remember, but do away with things that may may have had their expiration date already, mm-hmm. like toxic machismo. Like toxic machismo, yes. <laughs> hey, I love it. Each each one, teach one. 
and and each one teach one each, yeah. each one each one teach one and if you don't know you got to learn and that that will get you to the point where you can teach so each one teach one definitely yes. i love it i love it doorman david <laughs> oh man thank you so thank man, you seriously thank you so much for your time your wisdom your your passion behind history that keeps driving so much forward and connecting so many different people and for sharing everything for being who you are um this was a beautiful time. Thanks for joining the Anthony Thomas podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so, so much. I look forward to a good amount more of these with you. Yes, yes, yes. We, I mean, we have plenty to talk about. So I will definitely, I will definitely be bringing you back on for sure. Um, Perfect. Well, thank you. That is it for now. Thank you all for listening. Much love. And remember, each one teach one. Each one. That's right. Teach one. <laughs> Thank you for listening and welcoming us into your ear holes and your brain flows for today. David, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. As a listener, if you enjoy this podcast and you feel the motivation to give your support, then send an episode to a friend, send me some feedback, or if money is your language, go to anthonyjthomas.com slash podcast and click the donate button. You can donate to my coffee fund if you so please. Thanks again for listening. Have a powerful day. Much love. Peace.